right, so open your Bibles or your device with a Bible up to Psalm 8. Now, if you're observant, you notice that we're going a little bit out of order this week. Uh, last week, we were in Psalm 6, and we felt like Psalm 8 kind of kind of fit really well with our, our decor and our VBS themes. So uh, we're doing Psalm 8 today. You'll get seven next week, and then nine the following week. We'll be back in order at that point. So we're just kind of skipping a little bit to, to get to Psalm 8. Now, when Pastor Rob said that he was planning a series that was called Living Beyond the Muck, uh, back a couple of months ago when we were starting to plan this thing, um, I kind of had a, a PTSD flashback to an 80s movie. And for those of you who were kids in the 80s, you may remember the movie, The NeverEnding Story. Anybody remember that one? Oh, oh wow, wow, okay. All right, first service is a couple people. First service is kind of like, I don't know what now? Um, you guys know the scene I'm talking about with muck, right? The horse in the swamp of sadness getting stuck in the muck, right? Now, for those of us who are kids, I don't know what it was with 80s movies and wanting to like, make us really sad and scar us for life, uh, but there was a lot of those 80s movies for kids that were just like trauma-inducing, and this one was no exception. For those who aren't familiar with it, uh, you can, if you want the gut punch, you can go on YouTube and check it out later. I had someone do that between services, and they were like, oh my gosh, now I'm scarred for life. It was so sad. And it's sad, because Atreyu, the hero in the story, uh, leads his horse through the swamp of sadness, where you shouldn't let the sadness overtake you or you'll drown. Right? So, because our 80 movies love to give us trauma, uh, the horse does indeed drown in the swamp, and it cuts to black, and then it cuts to a scene of this, this poor young child crying in the swamp of sadness because his horse is drowned. And then it cuts to the kid who's reading the book, and he's crying because the horse is drowned. And then it cuts to those of us in the audience who are all crying because the horse drowned. Um, now, don't worry, spoiler alert, our tax does show up again at the end, so when things are made right, the horse comes back. But as ugly as that scene was for us as kids, it is a vivid image of being stuck in the muck. The swamp being called the swamp of sadness was really no mistake on the part of the writers of that movie. When we get stuck in the muck of life, whatever that muck might be, it can seem like there's no escape, like it's closing in on you, like you're drowning, just like that horse. When we're stuck in the muck, it seems like Sadness and chaos and uncertainty and evil and anxiety, they, they just cause us to focus on that muck. We look down, we fixate on it, we lose hope, and we allow ourselves to be dragged in by the muck. Now, David, who wrote this psalm and plenty of others in the book of Psalms, had all kinds of experiences where he felt like he was going to drown in the muck. We saw David write about weariness and sorrow last week in Psalm 6. Next week, we're going to hear him talk about problems with his enemies in Psalm 7. It's interesting, though, that you have that, uh, and then immediately we get to Psalm 8, which is unquestionably a psalm of praise. So why is this beautiful praise camped out in the Psalms next to these swamps of sadness? Remember, the book of Psalms was arranged as kind of like a hymnal for those who, who had it in the Old Testament, and so its arrangement was intentional. And so for some reason, whoever arranged this first part of the book of Psalms thought that these Psalms went well together. So why is David's swamp of sadness planted right next to this song of praise? Well, let's read the psalm together, and let's try and find that out, shall we? This is Psalm 8, 
to the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now, one of the things that you can look for when you read a passage of scripture, and particularly something that's self-contained like a psalm, is repeated words or phrases. When you see something that's repeated multiple times, uh, it's a good way of kind of like a bold and italics in the text to say, hey, pay attention to this, this is really important. And when those phrases bookend a passage at the front and back side of it, it's even more significant. And that's actually so significant that it has its own name. And here's your SAT word of the day. Uh, that word is inclusio. So when you have a passage and it starts with the phrase and ends with the same phrase, uh, those are bookends on the passage. And it tells us a lot about what that psalmist or writer is trying to tell us about that chapter. And so in this psalm, the first part of verse 1 is repeated again in verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And it's repeated again. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So it's really, it doesn't take a, a scholar to figure out that, okay, David really wants us to pay attention to that. That's really important. And it gives us the theme of this psalm. It is a psalm of praise. And it's a psalm that's intended to emphasize the majesty of God and of his name. David in this even uses the sacred personal name of God uh, when, he, when he makes this statement. And you can tell, uh, if you have an English translation of the Bible, you can tell when that's used because you'll see the word Lord represented in all capital letters. So uh, when that happens, the author or writer or psalmist is using God's sacred name. Now, names have importance in Scripture. When you look at various people and their names, uh, a lot of times your Bible will give you a little footnote that says, hey, this is what that translates to. And those names have very significant meanings. Now, God is given many names in Scripture, but there's one that stands out. It's four Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, and He, Y-H-V-H. And we believe that that name is pronounced Yahweh. We're introduced to the name of God in Exodus chapter 3. Uh, Moses is experiencing the burning bush with God speaking to him from the burning bush. And uh, God basically tells Moses, hey, uh, I need you to go and to free my people from bondage. And as a part of the conversation, Moses says, well, who should I tell them sent me? That seems kind of like a silly question uh, to ask, but it actually was really important um, because gods throughout the ancient Near East had varying names and titles and things. And so he was like, who should I tell your people sent me to them? Like, what, what should I call you? And so God responds with 
this name, Yahweh, which can be translated, I am who I am, or simply, I am. God's name reveals some incredible things about him. He simply is. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He's the sustainer of everything. He is unchanging. He is eternal. And since he's eternal, it means that God not only is, but it means that he was, and it also means that he will be. And because he's eternal, it's not like he's not going to be there. He's got a track record. He always has been and always will be. And for Moses, that was a really big deal because Moses was getting ready to go and do this big, scary, ominous task of confronting Pharaoh and freeing God's people. And God said, I am is sending you and I will be with you. And because he always has been, that was an assurance to Moses, I am eternal, I'm not going anywhere. So as you go, I will be with you and you can count on it. That's incredible. And that truth about God is a weapon against the muck that we face. When we recognize that God is, and he was, and he will be, we recognize that God will be with us no matter the muck that we face. We don't have to fear the muck because I am is. If there's something we face, we do so knowing that if you've placed your faith and trust in Christ, that God goes with you. God can equip us to handle whatever comes our way, and he will be with us. Now, David begins and ends this psalm reflecting on the all-sufficient, self-sustaining God of the universe. And while that inclusio mentions all the earth, verse 1 actually adds an additional line to tell us that God has set his glory above the heavens as well. So God's name is majestic on the earth. God's name is majestic in the heavens. I think that covers everything, doesn't it? Earth, heavens, it's all there, right? And so God's majesty and God's glory is anywhere and everywhere, even when you find yourself in the muck. Now, verse 2 goes on and kind of gives us an interesting statement. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Okay, that's kind of interesting. So how is God's strength established by babies? How does that work? How is the enemy and avenger stilled by infants? Well, let's think about it this way. Let's just say right now as we were sitting here, all of a sudden, a scream were to come from the lobby. And you recognize it's a child. And it's more than just a child saying, don't poke me, or, you know, my sibling's bothering me, or I'm on a swing, yay, I'm having a good time. You recognize it as a scream of genuine terror, a scream of concern. And so as you hear that scream, what would happen? I'm willing to bet that half this room would empty and go into the lobby, and that whoever was threatening that child would be about to have a no good, very bad day, right? It would not go well for whoever was threatening that child. You know, a playground bully might not fear a single child, but they do fear those that the child could call upon for help. Parents, teachers, mobs of friends, uh, that's very intimidating as opposed to just a single child, right? And so if a child has a problem and they call out for help, parents, teachers, a mob of friends, that is much more intimidating than one child. 
The same is true for us. Uh, as one commentator puts it, strength resides in the cry of one who has privileged access to one who embodies strength. Your cry to God is powerful, not because of you. Nobody's scared of you. They're scared of the person you're calling out to. The one whom you call out to has power, and that's what matters. And all of that results in a very powerful anti-muck weapon. If you are a Christian, you can fight the muck of life when you realize that God is on your side. The all-sufficient one who needs nothing. Yahweh God, the I am, is in your corner. And you have the ability to cry out to him in your time of need. That's incredible. There are many places in scripture where people cry out to the Lord, especially when it involves an enemy and an adversary. And when they cry out, the adversary is not scared of the person crying out. They know that they're calling out. They've got the red phone and they're calling God himself. And that's an intimidating prospect. You know, just as a child can summon the intervention of those who love them with a simple cry, God establishes his strength when his children cry out to him as well. And when we observe God's strength through the heavens and the earth, why would I call out to anyone else? He is, and he is God. Now, there's also um, another sense in which God's strength is established by little ones. Uh, some translations of verse 2 use the word or concept of praise in lieu of strength. And uh, the New Living Translation takes that tack, and it reads like this. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. Now, that's kind of an interesting concept, that the praise of children would be juxtaposed with the strength of God's enemies. One commentator puts it this way, the discordant note sounded by the enemies in God's creation is silenced by the praise of children. Have you ever thought of praise as strength or praise as a weapon? Uh, you know, we, we sang the song earlier, and it wasn't an accident that we sang that song, We Praise You, and uh, the first lines of the first verse read, let praise be a weapon that silences the enemy. Let praise be a weapon that conquers all anxiety. Now, the first time that I sang that song, it kind of caught me off guard a little bit, like, how do you weaponize praise? That's kind of a weird concept. Like, how does that work? Um, you know, and especially a weapon that is so powerful that a child telling of God's strength will silence his enemies. That's a powerful weapon, isn't it? Now, Brandon Lake is one of the co-authors of that song, and he put it well. He said this, praise isn't just something we give as a gift to God. It's something that can make things shift. It is a weapon. Even if it doesn't change the situation, praise can shift my perspective. It can take my eyes off the storm and put them on Christ. So when you study the Psalms, uh, there's a variety of different kinds of Psalms. Today's is a Psalm of praise, but there's two varieties of Psalms that, that are on the uh, a harsher side of the emotional spectrum. Uh, one of them is called a Psalm of imprecation, and an imprecatory Psalm is a Psalm against an enemy. And there are Psalms that, that usually have some anger baked into them. And then there are psalms of lament. Psalms of lament are psalms of sadness, where the psalmist is crying out and is upset and is sad. Um, these psalms can be very visceral. They can be very emotional, very raw. But something that's amazing about even in those psalms where the psalmist is expressing sadness and anger and tragedy 
that there's usually a moment where the psalmist takes it and says, but you, O Lord, but you, O God. And so they vent all of their frustration, they rage or they cry, and then there's a moment where the psalmist says, but you, O Lord. And in each of those instances, the psalmist, despite their anger and their sadness and their grief, they assume a posture of praise. Why? Because they're turning towards God and his power, his strength, his wisdom and majesty and righteousness. They're turning toward him. And so we see that praise is another anti-muck weapon in our tool belt that we have. When we praise God, we take our eyes off the muck and we turn them on him instead. Praising God takes our focus off of ourselves. It takes our focus and our fixation from the problems that we're facing in the muck, and it helps us look for direction from God instead. It's kind of like the old hymn says, we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. And what? The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Even the mucky things that have us in a panic and a tizzy are dimmed by God's splendor. Now, as we continue in Psalm 8, verses 3 through 8 are an obvious callback to Genesis 1 and 2, the story of creation. And it really doesn't take a Bible scholar to know that the moon and the stars are a testament to God's power. And, and that's kind of what we had going on at VBS all week. And just consider the sun. You know, we had a, a teaching moment with the, the kids this week where we talked about the sun at Vacation Bible School. And I think that we get so familiar with it that we take it for granted. You walk outside during the summertime and you're like, oh, there's the sun, it's there. You wake up in the morning, yep, the sun, it's there. <laughs> Do you know the sun is so large that you could fit 1.3 million Earths inside of the sun? That's a lot of Earths, isn't it? <laughs> 1.3 million of them. We're so far away from the sun that it takes eight minutes for light from the sun to reach us here on Earth. Imagine turning on a light switch and having to wait eight minutes for the light to get to you. That's, that's pretty far, isn't it? Eight minutes. The sun provides energy to the Earth, right? Many of you have solar panels in your house. Uh, the sun provides energy. It feeds plants. It gives heat. If there was no sun, there'd be no life on the planet. And as vital as the sun is for us, if we were too close to it, we would bake, we'd fry. If we were too far away from the sun, we would freeze. The sun is a testament to God's majesty. And not only that, but think about all the other stars. Think about the, uh, the stars, you know, the sun is a star, but think about all the other stars in the universe. They're beautiful to look at, aren't they? You see images from space telescopes and you're just, wow, look at that, that is amazing. But even just the sheer number of stars in the universe is incredible. Scientists estimate that there are over 200 billion trillion stars in the universe. That's a lot of stars. There's a two followed by 23 zeros. That's a lot of stars, isn't it? And that's only within the universe as we know and observe it. Some think that we're gonna find even more stars as our tools and equipment improve and we can observe more of the universe. That's incomprehensible. Speaking of the universe, it is estimated that the universe itself is 93 billion light years in diameter. And that means that if you started at one end of the universe and started traveling at the speed of light, which we're not even sure we can do, but if you could, it would take you 93 billion years at that speed to get from one side to the other. 
And then on top of that, some say that the universe is 250 times larger than we can observe. That would be seven trillion light years. So, I mean, you could start on a ship traveling at the speed of light, and one day, who knows what descendant of yours would actually reach the other side. Seven trillion light years. The heavens are awe-inspiring, aren't they? It's incredible. But, you know, as awe-inspiring as the heavens are, this passage reminds us that they're the work of God's fingers. That all the splendor of the galaxies, it just represents the power level of God's pinky. That in all of the universe, all the mass of, of what's out there, it's the work, simply the work of his fingers. You know, talking about the work of his fingers also tells us that God is an artist and he's a craftsman. You know, when we talk about the work of someone's fingers, it indicates their skill and their mastery. Now, in light of the vastness and artistry of the universe, David asks a pretty significant question. He says this, what is man that you are mindful of him? In light of the stars and the galaxies and the universe, what is man that you care about him in light of all of that? I mean, we're microscopic specks compared to stars and galaxies and the vastness of the cosmos. Or as one commentator put it, he said this, the beauty of God's creation dwarfs human existence and elevates the wonder that the creator should be mindful of humans at all. What are we that God is mindful of us? And David even goes on to say that God more than minds us. He crowned us with glory and honor. Wow! <laughs> God has your undivided attention. Holding together the universe is secondary to you. That's incredible. In God's opinion, the stars, the galaxies, black holes, quasars, they got nothing on you. Have you ever thought of yourself as more precious in God's sight than anything else in the universe? It's true. You are more precious to God than even the stars themselves. When we realize that God is mindful of us despite the vastness of the universe, it helps ground us when we find ourselves in the muck. The God of the universe wants to hear from you. The God who created more stars than we can fathom wants to be in relationship with you. And you know what? It gets even better than that. I mean, how could it get better? Well, it keeps getting better. Our identity in God is a weapon against the muck. And what do I mean by our identity in God? Well, verse 5 tells us that humans are extraordinarily special. And this is rooted in our creation by God. When you read the account of Genesis from Genesis 1 and 2, we see God create all kinds of things. We see God create light. We see him create space. We see him create earth, fish, plants, animals. And these are all created just at his command. God says, ah, let there be light. Boom, there's light. God says, mm, let there be some sky. Boom, there's sky, right? It just happens. But people are God's special creation. God does something more than just say, hey, let there be some people, and boom, there's people. God gets down in the dirt, and he molds people. He crafts people. It's the work of his fingers, right? The artist, the, the artisan, the craftsman gets down on his hands and knees and molds people. He breathes the breath of life into people. He took his time and crafted people. Men and women, all people, are God's special creation. We are the pinnacle of his craftsmanship. And not only did God create us, God gifted the earth and everything in it to humanity. He gave us dominion over the world. 
And then the psalm reminds us that we didn't reach the top of the food chain on our own merit. Uh, we didn't get there by accident. We didn't gain control of the earth because of us. It was given to us. God created it and gave it to us. And we have that dominion under his authority. You know, and it gets even better than just having dominion over the earth. Genesis 1, 26 and 27 tells us this. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Did you catch that? That's incredible. God made people in his image. That's a critical truth that helps draw us out of the muck. You are an image bearer of God himself. Nothing else in the universe has that honor except for humanity. You are an image bearer of God. God created us to be more than drones or minions. He created each human being, male and female, as his workmanship. As Ephesians 2.10 reminds us, we are God's workmanship. You, along with all of humanity, are infinitely valuable in the eyes of God. Now, this is an incredible tool to fight the muck. If we know all people have value in God's sight because they bear his image, that includes you. You are infinitely valuable to him, even if you don't think you are. You are valuable to God. Even if you've done things that have landed you in the muck, it doesn't matter. God still values you. Even if others have tossed you in the muck, God still values you. You have value. You are loved. You are wanted. Now, how do I know that? Well, because God paid an incredible cost to fix our broken relationship with him. He didn't have to. He didn't need to. He chose to because he loves us. I mean, that famous verse, John 3, 16, sums it up, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's so simple, but it's so true. God loves us so much that he gave up his son for us. That's an incredible truth that draws us out of the muck. And it draws us out of the ultimate sin and muck, ultimate muck, sin and death. Now, not too long after Miriam and I were married, we got a dog. I think many of us do that. You go, you get married, you get a dog, right, before you have the kids. And your parents are like, oh, I guess I'm not getting grandkids because you got a dog, right? Well, meet Buddy. That's our first dog, Buddy. Buddy was a purebred American mutt, from the best that we could tell. Uh, he was a puppy when we got him, and we were like, well, what kind of dog is he? And they said, well, his mom was about this big, and his dad was about that big. <laughs> okay, cool. Like, I don't know what this thing is. If no one needed a dog that had all the genetic material to spawn all the other breeds of dogs, that would have been one of them, okay? He could have been on the ark, and, and like, we would have had enough genetic material to make all the dogs. Now, we lived in Southern California in the middle of the Mojave Desert at the time, and uh, Buddy was a true Mojave Desert dog. He hated water, anything to do with water. Uh, pools, sprinklers, hoses, baths, he didn't like it at all, um, and he just, he hated them. And uh, this was cemented in our minds when we went to go on a, a little day trip as a family. You know, we took the dog, we're like, let's go to the dog beach in San Diego, it'll be great. 
And so we pack up the dog. We take the two-and-a-half-hour trip from the desert into San Diego, get to the dog beach, and we're like, oh, this is going to be great. We're going to take the dog. It's going to be wonderful. You know, get to the dog beach, and it's an off-leash beach, so you take the dog off the leash, and he's kind of like, whoa, what am I doing here? Um, and, then, uh, and then a bigger dog kind of got between us, uh, chasing a Frisbee or something, kind of darted between us, and Buddy panicked. So Buddy takes off into the water, and the water at the dog beach was kind of like a big sandbar. And so Buddy takes off into this sandbar, and he's just galloping in the water, and water going everywhere. Well, next thing we know, he stops, and he starts looking around. And I realize that from, he's not very tall, as you can tell, and from his perspective, he's up to his neck in water, and all he can see around him is water. He doesn't know where he is or how to get back. He's just like, water, water everywhere. What do I do? I don't know what to, where to go. And so we called out to him, so Miriam and I were like, buddy, it's okay, buddy, come on, buddy, over here. And finally, he hears us, and he just starts taking off, and he gets out of the water, and he would not touch the water the rest of the day. When the tide, when the waves would come up, he would, like, dance around the waves, because he just, he just didn't want to have anything to do with it. Uh, and, and from that day on, he, just, he wouldn't touch water. Kitty pool with the kids... He'd be like, nope, nothing to do with it. We'd try to give him a bath, and, and he'd growl. And the dog just hated water. But Buddy kind of had a problem when he found himself in his own personal muck. He thought he was a goner. Why did he think he was a goner? Because all he could see was the water around him. He couldn't see the shore. He couldn't see his masters. He couldn't see any of it. He panicked and lost sight of that. But once he fixed his eyes, he could get out of the muck. Once he realized where he was supposed to go, he could do it. And the same is true of us. When we acknowledge God's strength and his majesty, when we fix our eyes on him, it helps us realize that whatever muck we find ourselves in, God can overcome it. When we praise God in the midst of the muck, it keeps our eyes on him so we can find our way out of the muck. When we see the beauty and grandeur of God's creation, it reminds us that he is mightier than the muck. It reminds us that he's in control. He cares about each one of us, despite how small or insignificant or worthless we think we are. The muck rolls off when we realize how much God values us. He made you. He made us in his image. He cares about us. He loves us so much that he gave us the gift of his son, Jesus. And that gift, again, helps us fight the ultimate muck, sin. And you know, a gift is not earned, right? Wages are earned, and the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What we earn is death, the ultimate muck. But gifts are free, right? And Romans 6.23 goes on to tell us that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So as we conclude today, I want to ask you an important question. Have you ever placed your faith and trust in Christ? Have you ever done that? If you never have, come see me, come see Pastor Rob. Honestly, come see just about anybody in this room this morning. And we would love to have the opportunity to tell you about that. We would love to help you understand what it means to start that relationship with Christ and to put your faith and trust in him.